The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the war zone, analyse the sacking of Major General Ivan Popov, and discuss morale and casualty rates in Russian forces during the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 14th of July, one year and 140 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from the war zone. Thanks, David. I'll turn to the front lines in a moment. But first, there have been several significant stories connected to the Wagner Group overnight and this morning. According to the British Ministry of Defence, Russia may be worried for the safety of its nuclear submarines after the mutiny by Wagner mercenaries last month. They understand that submarines from Moscow's northern fleet will not take part in this month's Navy Day fleet review in St. Petersburg for the first time in its six-year history. Now, the MOD say this could reflect the need to keep submarines on standby for operations, but adds that it could be because of security concerns following the coup. And this, of course, comes after reports that the paramilitary group came close to seizing a stockpile of nuclear weapons as they marched towards Moscow in June. So the MOD say, and I quote, there is a realistic possibility that internal security concerns since Wagner attempted its mutiny have contributed to this decision. The Wall Street Journal have also done an in-depth analysis into the consequences of the Wagner Muti on the Russian armed forces. They say the Kremlin detained at least 13 senior military officers and suspended or fired 15 others following the rebellion. The deputy commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, Sergei Stolovkin's apparent arrest is well known, but others less so, including the former Deputy Defence Ministry for Logistics Colonel General Mikhail Mazinskiv and other officers, including the deputy head of Russian General Staff's main directorate, Lieutenant General Vladimir Alexeyev. According to the Wall Street Journal, one source claimed that the detentions are intended to clean ranks, their phrase, of those Putin no longer sees as trustworthy. And if true, it would speak to the genuine alarm that the event seems to have triggered within the Kremlin. Interestingly, Putin has also given an interview with the Russian business newspaper Commerçant, where he claims he offered Wagner mercenaries the chance to continue fighting just days after they staged a coup against military leaders. Under the offer, which he made, as I say, five days only after, so he claims, the fighters would stay under their current commander, identified only by his call sign of grey hair. However, apparently this deal was turned down by Prigozhin. So who is this grey hair Putin claims is the real commander of Wagner? Well, his name is Andrei Troshev, a former 
artillery commander and police colonel. He was awarded Russia's highest honorary title after capturing Palmyra from ISIS in 2017 and has previously been named as an executive director of Wagner, though he's rarely discussed as being active in a military capacity, at least in Ukraine. But Roland is going to talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Now, whether this offer actually happened, as Putin claims, we don't know. But if it is true, he may be trying to drive some kind of wedge between the mercenaries, making it appear Prigozhin is out for his own self-aggrandizement rather than his men. Certainly the very fact that Putin is talking about this would seem suggestive of that. As a consequence of President Prigozhin's refusal to cooperate, Putin is essentially trying to make it sound now that he's been forced to disband the group almost against his will and says that it's going to have to be a matter for Parliament to decide. Now, as an aside, since we're talking about Wagner, a Pentagon spokesman said this morning that Wagner is no longer participating in any significant capacity in support of combat operations in Ukraine. But there are still so many unanswered questions about the future of the group. And of course, we will bring those to you once we know more. Now, onto the front lines. Ukrainian forces have had success in Donetsk, according to state media. A spokesman for the general staff reported that troops have made headway in the direction of two villages, Biragora and Avdrika. Attacks are also continuing in the north and south of Bakhmut, while forces are said to be gaining a foothold on territory gained there since last month. But of course, always important to caveat this, facts on the ground remain fleeting at times. We get hear one thing and then another thing is confirmed later. So just always treat this with uh, a dose of scepticism. But still, it does seem that there are significant developments taking place in certain places, this counteroffensive continuing to make progress. In terms of aerial bombardments, Ukraine suffered its fourth night of intensive strikes. The Air Force have said it down 16 kamikaze drones launched by Russian forces. In a statement online, it said the Russians attacked Ukraine with 17 Iranian-made Shahid drones from the southeast direction. As a result of military operation, 16 Shahids were destroyed. Now, we know two of these drones were brought down in the Mykolaiv Oblast in the south of Ukraine. That's come from the regional command's telegram channel. A number of buildings were also destroyed in Zelensky's hometown, in central Ukraine, and a 56-year-old man was injured there, according to its regional governor. Now, finally, a quick update on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The International Atomic Energy Agency have put out a statement saying its experts have in recent days continued to inspect parts of the plant without seeing any mines or explosives, but are still waiting to gain the necessary access to the rooftops of reactor units three and four following recent reports that explosives may have been placed there. Director General Rafael Marino Grossi added that the nuclear safety and security situation remains very precarious. So that's where we are in the military space after what's been an eventful week, David. Thanks so much, Francis. Can we just stay with you for one more update? Uh, Yesterday, President Biden gave a press conference with the Finnish president. It took place after we went live, so we couldn't report or comment on it. Uh, But he made several interesting comments that I thought summed up the US's position on the war right now. Could you just tell us a little bit about this, about what uh, President Biden said? Yes, I'll be brief. So President Biden was speaking in Helsinki, where he was meeting with the leaders of Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Iceland. He said he expects Ukraine's counteroffensive will eventually lead to negotiations to end the war with Russia. He said that he did not believe that Moscow could sustain the war for years, that Putin had already lost 
and also warned Prigozhin that he should be careful about what he eats. So I'll read a few of the quotes directly. Putin's already lost this war. Putin has a real problem. How does he move from here? What does he do? There is no possibility of him winning the war in Ukraine. He's already lost that war. Russia could maintain the war forever in terms of their resources or capacity, but eventually Putin is going to decide it's not in the interests of Russia economically or politically or otherwise to continue. My hope is and my expectation is you'll see that Ukraine makes significant progress on their offensive and that it generates a negotiated settlement somewhere along the line. Then asked about Prigozhin, Mr Biden said he was not sure where he is or what his relationship with Putin was and God only knows what he's likely to do. If I were him, I'd be careful what I eat. I would keep an eye on my menu. He also said he didn't believe that Putin would use nuclear weapons, adding, I don't think there's any real prospect, you never know, of Putin using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Not only China, but the rest of the world have said, don't go there, don't go there. Now, I should say that slightly goes against a phrase from him only a few weeks ago, where he did seem to suggest that he believed or once believed that it was entirely possible Putin would use nuclear weapons. So it may be that somebody has suggested that he... Uh, reanalyze his position, giving, of course, some of the more recent developments in terms of the conversations to have taken place between China and Russia, or at least that China has said took place on this issue. Now, at the same news conference, Mr. Biden also said that he was serious about pursuing a prisoner exchange for the Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Guskovich, who has been detained in Russia, of course, on espionage charges now for more than 100 days. He said, I'm a serious on a prisoner exchange and I'm serious about doing all we can to free Americans being illegally held in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. And that process is underway. Suffice to say, we will continue to keep monitoring that story and all of these uh, that we've reported on today. Thank you very much, Francis. Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? And um, there's two things to talk about, really. Would you like to start just giving your thoughts on what we've been reading in Commerçant over the past day? Yes. So basically, Vladimir Putin was speaking to Andrei Kolesnikov, who's this kind of very long-standing special correspondent with um, Commissant, who's been following, he's basically been assigned to follow Putin around for, I think, basically the past 20 years. I mean, he was always there um, when I was in Russia, and he's a stenographer. So sometimes, you know, when Vladimir Putin wants to get a message out, he will grant interview to, um, to Kolesnikov, who's kind of produced quite a few um, little pieces out of this 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 interview the well I don't know, this chat he had with Vladimir Putin in Moscow the other day and the the most interesting point is Kolesnikov says look I I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't ask one more question look w- w- what is it with this meeting um, on the 29th of June uh, they were talking about the NATO summit they've got their version I've got my version what's your version and <laughs> Putin says oh, I don't have a version I have what actually happened Maybe you and NATO have a version. Okay, well, what happened? And, and, and it's kind of as Francis says, the account goes like this. Uh, soldiers of Wagner fought very well. I wanted to talk to them, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I laid out several, this is I, Vladimir Putin, laying out several kind of options for further employment and so on. And he said, well, one of them was, I'll tell you what, you carry on serving under Siadoi, that's the, the cool sign that uh, this officer that France was just talking about translates roughly as grey hair. And he says, Sidoy was their direct commander. In other words, I'm talking about the man who, under whom 
uh, Wagner fighters have been serving for the past 16 months. And then um, Putin says, lots of people nodded when I said that, but Prigozhin, who was sitting in front of me and didn't see them nodding, said, no, the guys won't go along with that. So really putting one across there. Siedoy, sorry, could you read his name again, Francis? I know this guy. I've been reading about him for several several for the past week, actually. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He's actually, he, I mean, he's been around. Andrei Nikolaevich Troshev, police colonel in reserve from the, the Interior Ministry, fought in Afghanistan and Chechnya, won the Hero of Russia medal for the capture of Palmyra, all of that. Had a very embarrassing moment in 2017, actually. He was found drunk out of his mind by the cops somewhere in St. Petersburg, and he was staggering around with maps of Syria and several million rubles in his pockets. <laughs> and that made the papers back then. Um, but listen, he's, he's been fighting a very senior character in Wagner since the very beginning. And there were, he, he, he headed something called the, it's got a lengthy name, and I'm not going to recall it immediately now, but something like the, the Association for Defense of the Interests of Veterans of Local Wars and so on. That's basically kind of Wagner's charity. Um, now, he was removed as head of that on the 30th of June. And there was some talk about, you know, on the internet, terms about, well, why is that? Hmm, why has he been replaced? Maybe it's a kind of symbolic removal of people who were involved in the march on Moscow. What Putin says suggests that actually Putin has more trust in this guy than... But he's definitely... He's a veteran, he's fought all over the world, and he, he's definitely always been one of the most senior people in Wagner. And this is one of the big questions, really, about what happened on June the 24th, right? Who else in Wagner was involved? Were all these guys who we know of, who are at the top of the organisation besides Prigozhin, implicated? We know that Dmitry Utkin, Wagner himself, that other veteran leader, was meant to have been leading the, the bit that went for Moscow, that, that flying column that shut up the M4. Or did one or the other of them tip off the defence ministry and tip off Putin? We just, you know, this, this is part of the murk and the conspiracy that to which we don't really have direct answers, but, but quite interesting comments. There's one other thing um, Vladimir Putin said that kind of catches one eye. Kolesnikov says, well, you know, what's going to happen to Wagner? And he says, what are you talking about, Wagner? Wagner doesn't exist. <laughs> what are you talking about? He goes, oh, we don't have a law on, on private military companies. There is no, there is no legal entity called PMC Wagner. There is a group, but it's not that. And we're going to have to resolve that question somehow. That will be difficult. Now, that's interesting because that is actually true. And that is something that kind of frustrated reporting about Wagner for many years when they were still in the shadows and you weren't meant to talk about them. No one could track down a contract anybody had with a company called Wagner. So weirdly, I think Vladimir Putin's telling the truth there. That, that chimes with the, with the reporting that has existed before. And, and I don't know. I mean, hearing him say that sounds like he's going to use it in some way to, to reform them, disarm them whatever he's going to do. On my last little point on that, and I've been talking for a little bit, it is significant that Vladimir Putin not only met with these guys on the 29th, but is act actively advertising it in the Kremlin. I don't want to try and gaze too much into crystal balls here, but the facts as we can state them are that the, the messages are very contradictory and have been all the way through. So you remember on the day of the coup, Vladimir Putin goes on TV, says this is an unacceptable rebellion during wartime that has to be dealt with harshly. Then suddenly there's a deal and they're allowed to go into exile instead. And then suddenly they're in the Kremlin chatting. And yet at the same time, State TV, which is basically run by the, you know, runs around very closely controlled basis by the Kremlin, is airing these kind of character assassination pieces about the police raid on, on Prigozhin's house. And I would say 
it indicates some kind of power struggle. It indicates that Prigozhin is or Wagner are useful still. But my takeaway from the meeting in the Kremlin would be that Putin's kind of showing himself as still very much in control. He's 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 so in control and secure. He's willing to allow these guys in and sit with them and talk to them and and listen to his uh, listen to them like naughty children, uh, a benign a benign head teacher listening to his naughty children and uh, finding a way out for them. Um, so I, I guess it's kind of a show of strength in a way. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, Roland, for, for, for looking into that and explaining that. Can I stay with you? Yesterday, Francis referenced the story of this Russian Major General Ivan Popov, who made the news for accusing his superiors of a sort of stabbing, stabbing the soldiers in the back, essentially. You've written an analysis for The Telegraph on this incident uh, and its implications. It's an absolutely fascinating piece. I'd recommend uh, everybody listening goes to read it. Uh, the, the title is, the headline is, Russian General's Outburst is an Earthquake for Vladimir Putin. Um, Roland, can you remind us what happened? And in your view, why is this significant? Look, I was writing very quick. I think I think earthquake, I might be over-egging it there. Can I take that one back a bit? I don't think this is going to shake the Kremlin to its core. But what I meant was, well, there's earthquakes and there's earthquakes, right? There's a kind of 9.2 Richter scale disaster and there's and there's other things. I think there's de- like the, there are serious, serious cracks showing in the Russian war machine at, at the very top. And we've talked at length about the Wagner mutiny, which was one expression of that. But this is the first time that I can think of where you have a senior officer, not 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 Prigozhin or some Z blogger who, you know, whose job is to mouth off or something, but an actual senior general, commissioned officer, commander of the 58th Army, no less, airing exactly those complaints that we've heard so for so long um, on, you know, the kind of Russian military telegram channels and, and from Prigozhin and things like this. I mean, the, the central nub of his complaint, that the way he tells it, was that, look, we don't have enough counter-battery fire, we don't have enough artillery reconnaissance, and because of that, a lot of people are dying. Um, and he says, in his voice message, it came to the point where I had to either shut up, be a coward, tell them what they wanted give them the uncomfortable bad news or just tell the truth and I felt like I had to for you guys because he's addressing his men and they fired me for it now first point is that if he's telling the truth and someone who's just been fired might 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 not be in you know, maybe there were other reasons he got fired I don't know but 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 if that's true or it's got an element of truth it it suggests a military that's really got a problem with hearing basic facts because this problem with artillery is a basic fact about this war. Right? And, and you will find soldiers on both sides of this war who are grumbling about this and grumbling about how their superiors handle it. And what should be happening in both armies is that senior officers should be going to their superiors and banging the table and saying, look, my guys need more ammo, fighting the corner for your unit like that. And the, the senior command should be managing that and they should be used to hearing these reports back. If a general is going to the, the, the chief of staff and laying out what is basically a pretty blunt fact about this war. And he's greeted with, no, you're disloyal, you're too dangerous, get rid of you. I mean, that suggests a great level of of paranoia and resentment and also a a great degree of reluctance to just hear bad news. And there's plenty of examples in history of what that does to an army when, when you're in that kind of, when that culture kind of sets in. So that's the first point. And the second point is that he goes further than that in this voice message. He talks about, literally about a stab in the back you know the Ukrainians couldn't break through our front line, but we were stabbed in the back by the by the senior leadership, which is a a remarkable allegation. The the kind of language that can really lead to 
very I mean that kind of sentiment if it's if it's stoked can lead to very dark places and that and what's remarkable about that is it's very close to the language that Prigozhin was using in his before his before and during his march to Moscow and that's why I think small earthquake a sign of a serious crack there's definitely whatever the truth of it whether whether this message was self-justifying and actually he got fired because he wasn't very good or whether he's absolutely telling the truth that this language is going around and he's releasing this in an address to to his men to the men of the 58th army and he is an officer who is respected he's got credibility if you look back through previous reports and and blog posts that mention general popov you know he's he's generally referred to as as a general who's admired long before this there is no way that is not a bad sign i do want to caveat slightly though i think there's a, there can't be a danger of thinking all oh, right that so he's he saying he's saying the generals are going to march on the kremlin again and and do in putin he didn't say anything like that he appealed to his men to carry on fighting he wasn't questioning the war effort or the justification of the war effort and he wasn't attacking the president but it was interesting to me that it is another attack on very clearly on Valery Gerasimov and by implication Sergei Shoigu and then there's this question of well where does that come from is, is was he involved with Prigozhin we don't know we know that was it 13 the Wall Street Journal reported was it 13 or 15 senior officers generals were detained in in the investigation into that incident General Surovikin still hasn't reappeared so there's clearly a lot of suspicion and mistrust at the top of the Russian army and 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 it goes the, the other way. So there's also the fact that the 58th Army headquarters was hit by the Ukrainians in a storm shadow sh- strike on Tuesday. And that you could see some rumours of people saying, like, so who was it gave the enemy our coordinates? So th- there's clear signs here of, um, of immense distrust um, uh, and paranoia, which, which has the potential to be deeply... Debilitating. I say has the potential because we don't have that many. We don't have X-ray vision into what's going on at the top of the the general staff and the Kremlin. But this is an external sign of uh, things are definitely not well. And three weeks after the mutiny, things are definitely, definitely not well. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Um, I'll go to Hamish shortly. But Francis, do you want to come back on any of that? Yes, well, I know a few listeners' ears will have pricked up when they hear that phrase stabbed in the back. It's one with huge historical potency. As I alluded to yesterday, it's well known as one of the myths that Hitler spread around Germany in the 1920s, 1930s, which he used to try and win support from the population. It was popular amongst many soldiers who'd served in the First World War. They liked to believe they could have been successful in 1918, were it not for decisions made back by politicians and others in Germany. And so, it was, I think, an effective political strategy to adopt. We are seeing in Russia that amongst armed forces personnel, they are also attracted to this message that their own failures can be attributed not to their bravery, courage, strategy, but rather to decisions made by politicians as to what to send them and otherwise. But crucially, I don't want to give the impression that it's a similar comparable historical scenario. As I've said before, Russia today is very different from Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. In the 1920s and 1930s, Germany was on the precipice. Hyperinflation and, of course, the Wall Street crash and its implications led to a huge 
percentage of the population starving. I mean, it was that serious. We are not seeing anything comparable to that in Russia. The mutiny attempt was met by bemusement for the majority of the population. There was no popular uprising. There was no sense that this is our moment to finally show the elite who's boss. It is still a propaganda line that appeals to a very small number of people relative to the perspective of the population and as yet, a whole. And yet, as I've said before, Russia is a society that when revolution comes, it usually comes from within the elite. So in a sense, you don't need to have that message propagated around the whole of society. You just need for it to be appealing to a smaller number. Now, is that message cutting through to an elite around Putin, as opposed to just the rather eccentric outsiders like Prigozhin? Possibly. Possibly. We don't know yet. But there are perhaps some inklings that what may once have only appealed to mercenaries is now beginning to appear to more officials in the Russian army, hence why there has been this purge of them. But it's too early to speculate. But if we're talking about society as a whole, at large, in Russia, it is not comparable yet to think that they are going to rise up due to failings and the war in Ukraine, because ultimately that war still feels a long, long way away to the majority of Russians as their day-to-day life is experienced. Will that always be the case? Possibly not. Depends on the long-term trajectory of the war. But as for now, that is the state of play as I see it. Thank you, Francis. Sorry, Roland, very quickly, you wanted to come back on that as well. No, yeah, I mean, I mean that's, that, that's a good point. I mean, I, I'd say, I, I mean, I would say that there's a flip side to that, which is that Yes, society was generally, I think, what was the word bemused you used, wasn't it, Francis? And what would be another word? Indifferent, is indifference the word? I mean, yes, you, you, you're not seeing a kind of huge, widespread swell of, of, of popular support for this kind of thing. But at the same time, this sense that people would may, maybe stand aside lends weight to the idea that if, if there is a change of power, it could well come down to a struggle at the top between various committed groups of armed men. And, and when you've got a general, an angry general, a disgruntled general who has a very loyal following. They can be potent and, and, and dangerous enemies for that. And, and Popov certainly seems to feel, if you listen to the tone of his, of his voice message, that a bond with his troops, he certainly seems to be laying claim to that, that bond and that loyalty. And there's, there's another point that I realised I hadn't really made clear before, is that it's, it's not at all clear that he intended this to become public. Uh, as far as we understand, this voice message was taken from some private private chat or channel for the, the men and officers of the 58th Army. He didn't publicise it himself. But it still leaves me wondering, in the murky, murky world of, of Telegram, basically, why are these things still coming out? Um, it has, has somebody decided they want to keep these these attack lines against Shoigu and Gerasimov um, popping out for, for, for our consumption um, for the consumption of others or are, are those um, those towers of the Kremlin who really don't like Gerasimov and Shoigu still hoping that they've got a chance of getting rid of them even after the attempt with Mr. Prigozhin and Wagner didn't work out and, and the short short rule of thumb there is of course is take everything you read on Telegram with a with a with a bucket of salt because there are all kinds of spin doctors and, and unknown questions about the sources of things. Well, thank you, Roland and Francis, for all of that. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, can we bring you in? What did you make? What do you make of what Roland and Francis have been talking about? 
Well, good, good afternoon, everybody. I mean, really, really fascinating. And I, I, I'd frame what I'm about to say about trust and morale and really from a soldier's perspective rather than perhaps a, a journalist's perspective. The point at the beginning of the pod that the UK MOD intelligence brief today about Russian subs, nuclear subs, the inference is that the Kremlin and Putin do not trust the crews who are crewing these Russian nuclear submarines. You know, I find that absolutely staggering. And it links in to a lot of other bits and pieces that, that we're seeing. General Popov, he's not a desk jockey like Gerasimov and Shaigu and to a lesser extent uh, Sorovkin. This is a field army commander. He's commanding an army. It's a massive organisation. And he has felt fit to spill the beans. And it ties into a piece that I've written, which I think will be in the paper tomorrow or maybe on Sunday, about casualties. And we've discussed this a lot in the past, but I think really significant yesterday, the Russian independent media organisation Medusa published a report about Russian casualties saying that 55,000 Russians had been killed in the conflict so far, and 77,000 VSI, very seriously injured, won't return to the battlefield. Now, if you put that against the official media line coming out of the Kremlin, where 6,000 have died, there, there is a massive divergence there. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting to, why, why are these figures so high? There are a number of reasons. First of all, the Russian elite military pretty much were killed or seriously injured in the first few months. Therefore, you, you see that replaced with conscripts who are, pure, who are very badly trained or little trained and equipped, and they've been dying in their thousands. But of, of interest, the reason they've been dying in their thousands is, is um, because they're not trained. They can't do, as we've discussed before, combined arms manoeuvre, where infantry and artillery and tanks all work together to protect each other and can be more effective, that they are basically in trenches and told to go over the top. And the leadership, which I think Popov is alluding to, the leadership is basically behind them. Russian officers are behind the troops and they're ordering them over the top. And if they don't go over the top, they're, they're shot. So the morale is absolutely devastatingly low. And the thing about the Medusa piece is in various discussions I've had with intelligence people in this country and, and overseas uh, recently, is that actually this is starting to get through to the Russian population. Most Russian media controlled by the Kremlin is all propaganda and disinformation. But suddenly people are beginning to realise the, the human cost of, of what we're looking at here. And... Um, there is a view, I think, in certain security organisations that this this dam might well be burst. So I think really supporting what Francis and Roland have been saying, there is we, we might be reaching some sort of tipping point here. And my, my sort of my final piece to this is is the cluster munitions piece, which I know you've discussed discussed in great detail, but it fits into it. I'm not sort of. Not not going to discuss or 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 uh, defend the use of cluster munitions because you know I think the the, the story of of civilians being injured is well known and and well documented. 
But actually, in this particular case, and I think Zelensky, I think he has reassured NATO that the cluster munitions are just going to be used in the, in the front line in the sort of Donbass and elsewhere. But again, psychologically, for those troops on the ground, because of course the Russians, I, th- I, I saw something today coming out of the Kremlin saying how how derived of morals the West was to be using cluster munitions. Uh, and that is obviously going to get to the front. But the, the thing about them is they are so more effective against soldiers in trenches than than conventional inverted commas artillery. So I think they, and now that the Ukraine frontline units appear to have them, I think we can expect to see them ha- having quite a significant effect. So to me, it, it would appear that the trust of senior commanders like Popov, potentially captains of nuclear power submarines in Russia, is is fragmenting. And, you know, I sort of put that into the perspective of, say, the British Army. I mean, it, it would be it would be ineffective, completely ineffective if, if that happened there. And when the Russian population start to absorb and understand the casualties Alabite, most of these people are from ethnic minorities in the east uh, and the south of Russia, not from the the elites in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg, but people are starting to talk about it. So I think we're, we're reaching a, a pretty significant message. I'll, I'll, I'll stop that. But trust and morale, I think, is, is eventually going to undo the Russian military effort in Ukraine. That's fascinating, Hamish. Can I just pick you up on one thing you said? Well, I've got a couple couple of questions, actually. You said that the cluster munitions will be more effective uh, against troops in trenches. Could you just spell that out for as non-military types? How exactly will they be used or might they be used? And why will they be more effective than conventional munitions? Yeah, really good point, David. I, I, I meant to say that. I mentally prepared something. So in, in, in real simple terms, a 105 millimeter artillery shell with high explosive Will at will land at a point, will explode, and anybody within five or ten meters of that will be seriously injured or or, or killed, e- even if they're in a trench. But any, any any further than that, and and you're pretty safe. So it's although we call it an area weapon, it's sort of a point weapon. Now, what happens with a cluster munition? A a a, a shell with cluster munitions has hundreds, if not thousands, of, of these mini munitions, which are the size of a cricket ball or a tennis ball. So what happens is that the shell will fragment 10, 20 metres above the ground that, and will spread these munitions over probably about the size of a football pitch, size of a rugby pitch, and then explode. So anything within, maybe, what, 150 metres by 100 metres will be devastated rather than a very small area. So without wanting to be crude, you know, you're getting a much bigger bang for your buck and and the coverage. So what I expect the um, Ukrainian artillery will be able to do is, is saturate these trenches and defensive lines with cluster munitions and and absolutely devastate. You know, you've you've got these these young kid Russian kids there who basically got a helmet, got some body armour if they're lucky. But this is just going to be a rain of, of, of absolute terror on them. And um, when you've got a, when your morale is pretty fragile anyway, uh, I think I think that that is the most significant part of it. Uh, and the 
the failure rate of of um, modern American cluster munitions is is very very small. Lots of people talking about the failure rate in Vietnam and elsewhere of being sort of forty percent. We're talking in the in the single figures percentages, and from what I and there don't appear to be any civilians in Russian trenches. So the 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 reason that we're banning cluster missions is so dangerous for for civilians and people uninitiated. That shouldn't be the case here. So I think I think they will be a very significant. I, I hope that sort of answers the question, which I, I did mean to answer before. Absolutely. Thank you. Just one more question from me before we go to our final thoughts. In your piece for The Telegraph, you write, and I think this is an interesting point because I think it goes to, I think it gets to the nub of potentially the Russian military strategy and its limitations and its weaknesses. But you write, mass does have a value in modern conflict, but in tanks, fighter jets and cruise missiles, not human flesh. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, could you explain what you mean by that and just maybe balance that against what the Russian army has tried to do in Ukraine over the last year? Yes, absolutely. I think when when we think about mass, we think Challenger tanks, Leopard tanks being supported by our artillery and strike aircraft, which maybe in the very beginning of this war, the Russians had that. And, and when that was all whittled down, the only mass they had was, was human flesh. And when you think a one pound rifle bullet can kill one person, that, that, is, that is not... That is not mass creating an advantage. When you have 100 tanks against 10 tanks, that is mass creating an advantage. Now, we, 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 I think we, we've discussed before, and, and everybody's aware that, that Putin is trying to elongate that conflict, that the only way he can elongate the war in Ukraine, it would appear at the moment, is, is the mass of human flesh, because he's lost 4,500 tanks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's rather crudely what i'm try- what i'm saying by mass it's you know mass can be good and mass can be bad and it's just dreadfully it it's it really tears your heartstrings when you you see the mass of of russian flesh just being thrown almost in first world war like terms against you know you've almost got a first world war um trained army fighting a 21st century army and it's it's just devastating Thank you very much, Hamish. Roland and Francis, any final thoughts? Thanks, David. I wanted to flag an investigation by the Associated Press. It's called Thousands of Ukraine Civilians Are Being Held in Russian Prisons. Russia Plans to Build Many More. It describes in vivid, harrowing detail stories of Ukrainians captured by the Russians in the territory they now occupy, accounting how some were loaded at gunpoint into a livestock trailer and spent 12 hours or more digging trenches on the front lines for Russian soldiers. Many, says the piece, were forced to wear overlarge Russian military uniforms that could make them a target, and a former sitter administrator trudged around in boots five sizes too big. By the end of the day, their hands curled into icy claws. Nearby, in the occupied region of Zaporizhia, other Ukrainian civilians dug mass graves into the frozen ground for fellow prisoners who had not survived. One man who refused to dig was shot on the spot. Yet another body for that grave. But the most sobering thing about that piece is that it illustrates how Russia is planning to possibly build thousands more capacity for prisoners. A Russian government document obtained by the Associated Press dating to January outlines plans to create 25 
new prison colonies and six other detention centres in occupied Ukraine by 2026. Russia does not acknowledge holding these civilians at all, let alone its reasons for doing so. The piece says, rendered I think even more shocking by its bluntness, the AP Associated Press spoke with dozens of people, including 20 former detainees, along with ex-prisoners of war, the families of more than a dozen civilians in detention, two Ukrainian intelligence officials and a government negotiator. Their accounts, as well as satellite imagery, social media, government documents and copies of letters delivered by the French Cross, confirm a wide-scale Russian system of detention and abuse of civilians that stands in direct violation of the Geneva Conventions. Many civilians are picked up for their alleged transgressions as minor as speaking Ukrainian or simply being a young man in an occupied region and are often held without charge. Others are charged as terrorists, combatants or people who resist the special operation. Hundreds are used for slave labour by Russia's military, for digging trenches and other fortifications, as well as mass graves. Many former prisoners witnessed the deaths of Ukrainians at the hands of the Russians. It's a reminder 